Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey everybody, sorry about missing an episode last week. Uh, we had episodes recorded and everything. Had a few, uh, had a few hang-ups. Um, usually a few little hang-ups uh, I'm able to work around, but because of this tour right now, any little thing goes wrong. <laughs> and it really throws me off. I'm on t- quite a tight schedule. Um, the tour, by the way, is going wonderfully. Uh, I think I've sold out about half of the shows so far uh but most of the rest have been packed had one miss uh from a venue that uh that um had no place doing doing comedy and didn't know what they were doing i imagine i'll get one or two more of those um but other than that it's been amazing and uh, i've had a bunch of you listeners coming out and checking out the shows and uh please keep an eye on my schedule i would i'd love to meet all of you uh go to shane moss m-a-u-s-s dot com um i think i have about 60 cities left still adding some more just added uh the famous largo theater in la for february and i'm working on some florida dates um for mid-february and then the plan is to possibly go internationally after that but um i have a few few things i have to take care of before i start planning that out so who knows um but anyway so what happened last week was three nights in a row i was in some crappy hotel room and each of the crappy hotel rooms (laughs) that i stayed in had internet that would keep on going out it takes me like eight hours uh with a slow internet connection to upload one of these episodes and um and then if their modem resets or anything goes wrong i have to start all over again and i don't have time i'm i go and i do shows i come back i go to sleep and and uh if when i wake up it's not loaded up i have to go to the next city so that's all that happened i'm i'm still keeping up with the interviews um i i got a little tired <laughs> during uh some of the tour i had some real long drives and now most of it's pretty uh, a lot more manageable. I'm I'm the busiest I've ever been in my life by a long shot, but um, uh, it's this is an exciting time for me. So um, I'm I'm feeling good about things. I think we're uh, I'm I'm going to keep on getting some really fun interviews 
along the way. Keep the podcast going. Thank you, as always, for your support. Spoiler alert, just so you're at the end of the episode wondering, is he? what's his reaction going to be like when he gets stung by the most painful insect on earth? And unfortunately, I didn't get stung. I tried. I tried. Um, some would say foolishly, I suppose. I did try to get stung by um, the the most, or at least in the top three most painful insects on earth, and uh, it just didn't happen. Um, part of it was nerves. Uh, part of it was this stupid insect just wouldn't sting me uh despite me messing with it and touching it and poking it and pressing on it um <laughs> but so so anyway that's that's uh i don't know is that a letdown maybe that's a letdown <laughs> um but this is a really fun episode i get stung by something is that enough for you what do you want from me guys probably you want me to not to sting myself i imagine but uh, for some reason, in my mind, it's fun to uh, record myself getting uh, getting stung for pure entertainment uh, purposes. But anyway, uh, I, it's it's I'm so happy to be back. Um, I hate taking weeks off. This was just insanely busy. Um, let me know what you think of of the audio on this episode. I'm I'm starting to experiment with. Um, using my fancy microphones again. The problem with using my fancy microphones is that uh, you really need to be know your way around a microphone to use them well, and um, so I need to give special instructions to guests. And so I don't know. I, I, I start taking them with me on this tour because I figure I'm driving anyway. I can have the stuff in the car. It's a, it's a big bag of stuff that I, I normally don't like flying around with. Um, but we will see. I, I always like hearing from you guys. So let me know what you think. You can always go to the here we are podcast.com website, click on ask a scientist. I don't know why it's still called ask a scientist. It should be called ask a Shane. Um, <laughs> but if you do have questions for scientists, I try to, I try to make a mental note of all of them and explore them, um, with a future guest. And I also try to sometimes write you guys back. This is the worst time as far as trying to get back to you guys. But I still love it when you guys write and comment. And I do my very best to get back to you. I am insanely busy right now. Um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're busy. Let's get to the episode. This is a really fun one. Hope you guys enjoy. And I'll talk to you on the other side. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Justin O. Schmidt, uh, author of the book, the Sting of the Wild, one of the more interesting books I've read in some time. Thanks for joining me, Justin. Well, hello. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. It's, uh, so so you, you are a very, very interesting man. I 
So uh, I do at least a podcast a week, and I always try to read as much as someone's book as I can. And then usually I'm on to the next one. But your book, which I'm about a third of the way through, is going to be one that I actually go back and finish because it is uh, not only fascinating, but a a wild tale. Uh, You've you've had a very interesting life. So your book, uh, your book, The Sting of the Wild, is is basically it's about insect stings and essentially why uh why different insects have evolved to have different stings why some of them are more painful and and um the various defenses that insects have and and one of the things that you've done in your research is you've had yourself intentionally stung and i imagine unintentionally stung by many, many insects. What, what's the number of different species of insects you've been stung oh, by? Oh, gosh, I ran out of fingers and toes a long time ago. <laughs> so we, we kind of estimate somewhere in the low 80s, 82, 83, different groups of insects. And often I, I kind of lump, like you have harvester ants. There's a whole bunch of harvester ants. And they're all, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Same with fire ants, so I just count them as one. But if you count these different categories, then we're about about 82 or 83. So yeah, it, it's, it's a fairly good sized number. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to get stung um, at some point here toward the end. So uh, I don't know why I'm looking forward to that. You, you don't um, want to get stung uh, in the beginning so that you don't have to finish the podcast? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Well, if, I, if I think we ought to, ought to finish it probably before. Uh, finish it before, before we. Before we uh, I think it might be distracting <laughs> if I'm writhing in pain. <laughs> during. Could during be a little interview. bit. Yes. So. Um, in your book, you talk about as a child, this is insects were just something you were very interested in. What was the appeal to you? How young were you? Oh, I was, I think ever since I could remember, it was probably three years, four years. You know, you, you don't really know when your memory starts. But I was always intrigued with little creepy crawlies, and they, they weren't always insects. They could be anything from an earthworm to a little pill bug in the backyard. But the insects were kind of more interesting than most of the others because they were beautiful and they moved and you know pill bugs just kind of sit there and earthworms are kind of slimy and and you know so you kind of lose interest after you you look at those for a while but butterflies and and ants things like that were just really interesting and i was just always you know oh of course frogs you know every kid likes frogs and and salamanders unfortunately i grew up in a the popperate area that we didn't have any lizards. Lizards are really cool when you're a little kid. They scamper around. They have pretty colors and always doing interesting things. But that's kind of an aside. If it was creepy crawly and little like me, I liked it. <laughs> um, so what, when was your first time um, getting stung by one of these? Uh, it, it, when was your first sting? And... Um, well, answer that first, and then I'll. The, the thing do, I'll confuse everybody by saying my first sting wasn't a sting; it was a bite. Okay. And you say, "Okay, what's the difference?" Well, bite is with your jaws and your mandibles. A sting is with a pointy injection syringe in the rear end. In this case, I was getting bitten by uh, by what we call the wood ants. You know, the forest ants. Anybody that's grown up in kind of a wooded area of northeastern or, or midwestern U.S. will see these big ant mounds. They have variously colored, usually black, maybe a little bit of red on them. And these ants are really quite peppy. 
And I sat on one of these, uh, you know, just just to see what happens, which is <laughs> kind of a hard way to find out. And oh yes, that was called ants up your pants. And oh my goodness, they they were definitely chewing on my bottom parts. And so up I came, a lot of brushing and all, and got them off. So that was my first experience with with ants or or other things that can sting. Although these particular ones didn't. But at five years old, a bite is is pretty attention getting anyway yeah um i that that seems like a foolish uh thing to do but i i heard a more foolish story recently um about darwin when he was i think a teenager or early Mm -hmm. adulthood he was collecting roaches or termites or something like that and he had this one termite he was all excited about and he had it and then he saw another one that he wanted to grab and so what he decided to do, are you familiar with this story? No, I imagine he, he stuck it in his mouth to hold it. Yeah, he put it in his mouth to and hold on to it. And it pinched his tongue, I'll bet you. It was, uh, I think if I remember right, this termite, I can't, I'm so bad with names, so I don't remember the species. But um, it was one that it shot out like, it shoots out like 500 little pulses all at once or something like that. Um, some some termite well, the, that... Yeah, some of them what we what I call the nozzle heads because they have this pointy head and they shoot out these kind of pine pine terpene tasting things. Yeah, they're, they're really pretty nasty. And in fact, <laughs> anteaters, which for trivia of the day, anteaters eat more termites than they do ants. They just eat both. But some of them will. One of the defenses against them is to get too many of these termites that have these these nozzle heads of terpenes. And and the poor anteater gets an upset tummy and will stop eating them because of all this nasty. Well, you can imagine eating turpentine gets old really fast. <laughs> not a, it's not exactly a delicacy. So let let's set up the pain index and then let's go back and talk about. After we do that, we'll talk about how how these variations evolved and and why. So can you tell tell me a, a little bit about the. Uh, the pain index that you put together, which is um, wh- one of the most amusing uh, things you'll ever read. Everyone, please make sure and, and buy the book, The Sting of the Wild, by the way. If for nothing else, just to read through the appendix is uh, endlessly amusing. Um, so so tell me a little bit about this pain scale. That I'm yeah, the at. pain scale or the pain index, it's called either one, is basically a way to put numbers and compare different stinging insects. And it's kind of the way it works is a one is kind of not so bad. That's kind of like your typical sweat bee if you live in the northeast or midwest. A little sting. And it's a little pinch, ouch, usually in elbow. Things are, you know, kind of flying around, looking for lapping your sweat, you know, in the summer. And they, they have a sharp little pain, but it's nothing really to write home to mom about. Unless, of course, you're five years old, then you can scream and you'll get lots of hugs. So that's that's always a good use for it when you're little. But that would be a one, and a fire ant would be a one also if you're down from more southern climes than, than up there. And, and they, you know, they're not very pleasant, but, you know, you can live through it. So then a two is something like a honeybee. Most of us have been stung by a honeybee or a yellow jacket. That's a lot more painful. Mm-hmm. And then a three is something most people are fortunate not having to experience, 
And we have quite a few of those where I, I live. It's, you know, kind of I came here by desire. And this is where there's lots of wonderful stinging insects in southern Arizona. We're in Tucson at the moment, um, by the way, for the listeners. Yes, and, and Tucson, Phoenix area. Any of this, well, you see the saguaro cacti, the big cacti that stand up like tall men with their arms sticking up. That's our territory. And we have some really big paper wasps. Those are the wasps that most people see there. Often have these little nests. They have hexagonal combs, pretty much like honeycomb shape. And they'll nest above your windows or, unfortunately, by your entrance to your house or by the shed, something like that. They're, they're quite common. They're not particularly aggressive most of the time. But if you get too close to them, they'll let you know that, wow, we'd prefer you to be somewhere else besides near our nest. And we have some big ones, Plistes flavus. That's the scientific name. But the much more colorful name for it, I call it the Jesus Christ wasp. And you say, why do you call that? Well, the answer is, when you get stung, you say, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and the other reason, it has dual reasons. So this is a really cool wasp. It, the other reason is that it can helicopter down, straight down or straight up, and it goes into the middle of your swimming pool or bird bath, tanks up on water, and then flies away. And so it actually can land on the water, and it doesn't drown. Mm-hmm. Well, the only way it drowns is if you have a pool party and some teenagers decide to do a cannonball into it when the poor wasp is getting its drink and it gets flooded. And then you have to kind of fish the poor thing out so it doesn't drown. Sure. But, but that's a three. And we also have harvester ants, which are in that category. And they hurt like a lot more than a two. <laughs> and so then the final one is the four, and that hurts a whole lot more than a three. So you can kind of look at it one, two, three, and four, but that's kind of a a, a simplistic way to look at it in some regards yeah. because you'd say, well, like, is a four four times a one? Um, no. And for any of you who enjoy math or don't enjoy math, that uh, it's more of a exponential thing. In other words, if you have one, a one, that's a one. But if you have ten ones, like ten, say, fire ants, that's equal to a two. Mm. And so that would be a honeybee. So if you get a hundred fire ant stings or ten honeybee stings. I know it's getting a little complicated here. That would be equivalent to a three. And so a four would be like a thousand fire ant stings. Now, most of us don't want a thousand fire ant stings. I can assure you that. But that gives you an idea of the of the severity of it. You write these beautiful descriptions of the stings too, which um it seems like you have have a lot of fun in uh in writing these. I'll just I'll, I'll write a few, or I'll read a few um, for the listeners. This is, do you, do you have a favorite on, on uh, the one scale for the, for the ants? Let's do um, um, a European fire ant. The prickle of stinging nestles against your skin on a hot human day. That sounds kind of pleasant. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the, the day is pleasant, you know, a hot human day. If you live in Maine or New Brunswick, where these things are quite common, you really cherish a day where it gets up into the 80s, you know, something nice, and you don't have slush or winter or something like that. So the day is pleasant, but perhaps the sting makes it a little bit less pleasant. Yeah, still, uh, it's it's not anything that you do necessarily for fun, although I'm going to in a bit. Um, So Bola Ant is 1.5, so... 
So that would be like five times, basically? Yeah, exponential mean right. more like about three times. But Okay. Um, so a sneaky, unassuming ache, like a brightly colored Lego, <laughs> charming till it's lodged in the arch of your foot in the dark. <laughs> it sounds like you're like a wine connoisseur or something of, uh, of insects stings. Um, a two, uh, a, a purplish ant. Um, that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Uh, <laughs> Platytheria. Yeah, there it is. I'm still not going to attempt it. Relentless prickling through your body, like wearing a wool jumpsuit laced with pine needles and poison ivy. So we're getting into the less pleasant areas. Yeah, the, that, that was one of the big surprises for me, that it's an unassuming, beautiful ant. Nobody talks much about it, but boy, you grab it. And it lets you know it, it has this kind of rashy, you, know, you can imagine the poison ivy and pine needles in your wool underwear. And I think that pretty much conveys the concept. And <laughs> so, so Western honeybee is, this is just your standard bee that most people have been stung by once in their life? Your correct? garden variety of honeybee that's out there. So, know. so this is a two. Um, <laughs> so get, getting intense now. Burning, corrosive, but you can handle it. A flaming match head lands on your arm and is and is quenched first with lyle and then sulfuric acid. Not pleasant, but this is even worse. It's a three if it's on your tongue. Uh, uh, it's crawled into your soda. Uh, it's crawled into your soda can and and stings you on the tongue. It's an immediate, visceral, debilitating. For 10 minutes, life is not worth living. Uh, Believe me, that's true. I was bicycling. That's how I know that. I was bicycling and almost got run over by traffic because I had my mouth open. You know, mothers tell you, don't eat with your mouth open. Well, mothers should tell you, don't bicycle with your mouth open either because this darn honeybee flew in and it stung me. And, of course, you'd say, well, how do you know it was a honeybee and not, not a wasp or something else? The reason I knew was I could see as I spit it out that it was a honeybee, and it left its stinger in my tongue. <laughs> and that was about all of my conscious, intelligent thinking at that point. I just kind of managed to get off the bicycle without killing myself. My wife kind of helped me. We were on a tandem. And I just kind of sat along the roadside and just sobbed and ached for about 10 minutes until life, I thought, was worth living again. <laughs> Well, that's all subjective. Um, let's do a 2.5. Uh, let's get into the wasp family. A golden paper wasp. Sharp, piercing, and immediate. Uh, you know what cattle feel like when they're branded. Exactly. <laughs> a lovely description. Um, here's a three in the wasp family. A red-headed paper wasp. Immediate, irrationally intense, and unrelenting. This is the closest you will come to seeing the blue flame from within the fire. And here, this is, of course, I'm sure a lot of people's favorite. Um, I've seen this in several publications. Uh, a four. Is, is this the worst? What's the, yeah, four, four well, is, four the, is the worst, but is there varia- there's some variation within yeah, the... Yeah, they're, they're flavors. They're like wine analogy. You know, some yeah. has a nice bouquet and some, <laughs> some has a, a, a better, you know... Uh, aftertaste, and some have a full-bodied in the middle. The full-bodied in the middle would be the warrior wasp, okay. and and the bouquet would be the tarantula hawk. 
and the uh, final <laughs> delicacy that lasts forever in the back of your mouth would be the bullet ant. Oh. Uh, so, so you're just talking in terms of like how how long lasting it is, if it's like a slow build or exactly, and and so you can take your choice whether you want perhaps the most intense but the shortest, or a pretty intense that's medium length, medium being uh, roughly an hour if you want, you can extend it a little longer, <laughs> or if you want to draw out and find the fine savoring twelve to thirty six hour experience. <laughs> so you, you you get your choice of which one you want. I think I want a short and intense. Um, I so the the warrior is described as torture. You are chained to the flow of an active volcano. Why did I start this list? That's a fantastic question. So <laughs> so what is the purpose of of starting a list like this? What what, what is the purpose of of getting yourself stung? intentionally by so many various insects. Yeah, this was one of the things that, you know, I didn't obviously think intentionally, oh, I'm going to go out and get stung. You know, that wasn't my goal at all. I was a graduate student, of course, starving graduate students, if they're going to graduate, have to have a research project that works. And so I was working on this project of the chemistry of harvester ant venom because it was so unusual. And I got stung and I said, wow, holy cats, this thing really hurts. And so then the question was, well, how does the hurt compare to things I've been used to being stung with, say a bumblebee or a honeybee or yellow jacket wasp, you know, something like that, bald-faced hornet. And we're, most of us have been stung by one or two of those things. But these harvest ants were a whole different, different ballpark. They really were. So I said, well, how can I, uh, you know, relate to comparing one to the next? So that made me realize that, oh, I have to find out, is this truly unusual or is this just, you know, uh, just routine thing? I'm now in Georgia and I'd been before in Pennsylvania. Maybe the Georgians have more strong things than we did up in, in the north. And so in order to do this, I started studying everything else that I could find that was known to sting. And it was a dual project. I was trying to figure out the chemistry of their venoms, whether they were different from harvest ants as well. And then also how much it hurts. And so that was where the sting pain scale came in. They said, well, gee, you know, how in the heck are you going to compare a harvester ant to a, you know, a, a tarantula hawk or a, or a honeybee or you know, paper wasp or something of that sort? And the only way that you could come up with was to give them numbers. And so it really was kind of an indirect route. I was trying to answer questions, scientific questions about in my case, the evolution of social structure, social behavior in, in ants, wasps, and bees. And uh, in order to answer that, I had to determine how effective their defenses were. And their defenses, well, as you guessed, it's the sting. That's the most effective of all their defenses. You know, they can fly away and those sorts of things. But that was really the, the bottom line. And so that's where the sting pain scale came as a tool to answer questions. And then after a while, I realized, oh, well, this, this has some psychological advantages for us, too, that we can study that. So then I got into the human study, which is you know, where we are now. Mm. So one of the questions that might come to mind is, um, is why, if, if this sting is such an effective deterrent and defense, 
why why doesn't every insect have the exact same just the most powerful sting possible there there's two reasons why not every insect has the most powerful sting the first and trivial one is most of them don't need it but the other reason is that many of them can't and unless you are ant bee or wasp you don't have a stinger you know beetles don't have a stinger flies don't have a stinger moths don't have a stinger you know, so if you don't have the equipment, you can't do it. It's kind of like if you want to be a baseball player and you don't have a bat or a ball, you're not going to be a very good baseball player. And it's the same kind of thing with with the ants, wasps, and bees. They just happen to have ancestors that had this egg-laying tube called an ovipositor, and they were the primitive wasps, uh, the soft flies, which isn't a fly at all. It's a wasp ancestor, and the parasitic ones, that would bore into either wood or or into another insect and lay an egg to uh, you know feed its young. So they had the equipment, and then that evolved into uh, as they you know progressed up the uh, evolutionary scale, they evolved a venom that was effective as defense in addition to you know being as an egg laying tube. So that was that was why. Uh, and then, and then eventually, this egg laying tool kind of got replaced, right? It, it, well, it kind of they they started be, because this what was now um, used as this defense that had the secondary um, what started as a secondary use as using it for a defense because it had this capacity for this toxin. That then they were, if I'm understanding it right, the females were eventually able to deposit eggs in a different way, and then. And then the stinger was able to evolve strictly as a defensive uh, weapon in, in many species? Yeah, exactly. It, it turned out that as, as the ants, which have, of course have very good jaws and they often don't need their stinger for getting prey, although some do, there's some small colonies of, of more ancestral, kind of more primitive species that will sting their prey and inactivate and then carry it off. But all of them... As you mentioned, they they lay the egg now rather than through that stinger, they have a an opening at the base of the stinger so they can lay an egg without having to go through that torturous, you know, thin tube. You can imagine, you know, having a human baby, you have to put it through a a, a PVC water pipe that's an inch in diameter. You know, it's pretty pretty tough on the egg. Right. And uh and so that would be a nice thing to get rid of, especially if you have kind of miserable toxic venom that's going down that same pipe and so they got a different way of laying the egg and and that then liberated the sting because now selection pressure could work on just for defense and that's exactly what happened and that's why social insects pretty much all of them with the exceptions of a few ants use their venom strictly for defense you know the wasps never sting prey honeybees never sting prey you know, they, well, of course, honeybees don't prey on anything. They eat flowers, you know, nectar and pollen. So they've gone even further. They don't even eat uh, other animals anymore. But the wasps do. But the wasps have really good jaws. You know, I know you don't usually think about the jaws of a, of a wasp. But if you look at one up close, they're pretty sharp. And that's what they catch their prey with. And the sting is, well, that's for you and me. So we go away. <laughs> um and it was interesting to find out that that because of 
because of the reasons that you kind of just discussed. Oh, come on. I hope it's not a not a fire ant. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, because of these, uh, uh, because of the way that it evolved, only females have have stingers have the capacity to sting because males never had this egg carrying device to adapt into a stinger. Males are the nice guys, you know. Yeah. They're they're fuzzy and friendly, and they don't bite and they don't sting, and and they just play around and you know enjoy life you know kind of kind of the good life and it's the females like you mentioned because they had the egg laying tube so the females do all the defense and i guess we could draw the analogy into our population that maybe some of us guys might think gee you know if women go to war rather than us you know and defend us maybe that'd be a good deal but then again you know we kind of think the other way oh no no we're supposed to take care of the women so social species have different solutions. The insects put the females to work, and we as humans put the males more to work. You know, of course, there are women that do equal numbers, but, but you know, anyway, get, at risk of getting myself into trouble here, uh, you, you, you can see there's, there's some differences in the way social species we, solve problems. Yeah, we talk about gender differences all the time on this so uh, we've we've already given all the disclaimers <laughs> that we need to. What what answer these? Because um, now I'm like I'm tempted to get stung right now and just check. So these are all females in here. Yeah, these are all females, and they're actually not ants at all. They're wasps. They're called velvet ants, and that's because they they're shaped like a, a an ant. The females have no wings. Mm-hmm. They're like a little tank on wheels that runs around on the sandy areas. Do males have wings? Yeah, the males have wings, and they can actually fly. They look like sort of grayish or black fuzzy teddy bears. They're actually quite cute. Some of them have a little bit of red on their tail, and some of them will have yellow. And they're uh, they're kind of short-lived, you know, live fast, die young kind of things. Their whole life is just basically trying to find the females. Now, the females, they have serious work to do besides this frivolity of dealing with males. Right. You know, get, get mated and get... Get on with it. Life's too short. And they live months and months, sometimes up to a year and a half. And they're looking around for hosts, usually uh, wasps or ants that nest in the soil. And they lay their egg and kind of parasitize them. And so that's why they uh, they look like ants because they, if you're digging in the soil and you're not going to be you know, flying around, you have no need for wings. They get in the way. Plus they make you vulnerable. So they're actually wasps, and they sting like wasps. Mm-hmm. So wh- where are these on the pain scale? Well, they, they range from, there's something like over 6,000 species of these things. In the U.S., we probably have two or 300. In Arizona, I think we have about 150 alone. Mm-hmm. And they range from little tiny things that are about, oh, a sixteenth of an inch long to ones that are a full inch long. And so as you can well imagine, size matters. So if you pick up a little little 16th or 8th of an inch long one, that'll be a, a 1 to a 1.5, maybe a 2 if you really get a good solid sting on the bottom of your foot or someplace that really hurts. Medium-sized ones that are, say, a, a quarter or a third of an inch long, you know, they'll be a good solid too. And, well, I guess you know where I'm going with the big 1-inch one. That's yeah. That's going to be a big 3, but 
you're you're in luck today. We have no threes. We just have a couple of the little one one or twos in there. So what do I do? I just stick my hand in this. We well, have star. to actually you have to actually pick them up because they're not really interested in stinging you. They're just interested in getting on with life. All more right. important things than than journalists or biologists to mess around. So you have to actually you know grab the thing. Between so, between a finger and a thumb or something like that. So the bigger, the better, basically? Well, the bigger has more color and flavor, that's for sure. All right. I am. Um, you can pick the more colorful ones if you want. Very nervous right now. All right. Let me see if I can just grab one of these guys. I'm about to get myself stung. So I guess I shouldn't. I just they're, they're pretty be, peppy, yeah. Between my my index finger and my thumb. Yeah, just just like the way you you grab most anything. And then it will sting me with its like backside. Yeah, you just hang on to it. <laughs> oh, I'm so nervous right now. So this is just going to be a two. Um, probably unless you got one of the little ones, then that'll be a, a one. See, they have they have no desire to really sting you. They're they're just running around saying, "Who's this big clumsy monster around here that doesn't know any better?" Uh, yeah, I am a big clumsy monster. Um, all right, let me try to grab one of these. You're a monster that's roughly a million times bigger to give you a little bit of an idea of the scale. So he's crawling on me now. So then I just like hold it in my. Yeah, just see. As long as she's crawling on you, she's not going to sting. So you'll have to kind of pinch her between, or you can put, you know, one hand on top and compress her up against your palm or something like that. Okay, I'll try that. She's pretty hard, so you don't have to worry about squashing her. That's not going to happen. She's like I a set already, of I a tank like a on wing. Buzz, from yeah. it, like well, she's warning you. She's uh, she's stridulating, as we call. It. That's kind of squeaking a little bit, like a. Uh, a microscopic rattlesnake buzzing its tail. Uh, I am not looking forward to this. I don't know why, why I thought this would be a good idea. Well, All it's right. up to you. Uh, <laughs> I've been stung, so I don't need another one. Yeah, just push down on her. It won't hurt her. It'll probably hurt you. Right away? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Oh, it wasn't too bad. That was probably just the superficial one. She was just oh. a little more intense. Okay, yeah, I can. Ooh, yeah, that's coming on. <laughs> that's coming on now. Um, uh, let me push down one more time. Just push her down and hold her down. She doesn't need to breathe, so she'll be fine. Okay, I don't want to hurt. You her. might need to breathe. Oh, you won't hurt her. Come on. Ah, there we go. That's not too bad. I could, I, whew. yeah, that was, that was a, that's a nice sting. Yeah, that's well, uh, good. It's, it's starting to throb now. Yeah, it'll, and, it'll pick up a little bit. <laughs> Whoa. And then I almost spilt the entire jar of ants. Oh, sorry guys. I made, I messed up your food. Oh, um, that's all right. They, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's throbbing. Um, I've I've definitely felt worse pain in my life, but uh, it's enough that that you don't want to well, hold on to well, it, it gets, anymore. Gets than your that. attention. It yeah, definitely gets your attention. 
it's uh it's starting it seems like it's getting a little red i don't know i can't really tell yeah they but get... it's definitely throbbing some um, is, is it kind of itching too uh, a little bit not too bad um yeah we'll see i'm I might be I might be ready for a three by the end of the show. We'll we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I I'm a bit of a, a glutton for pain. Um, so so one of the factors um, is for for how intense the pain is 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 kind of how how they live, how they how social they are, right? If 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 something's can you explain the difference between an insect that's kind of off by itself and an insect that is in a big colony and, and how that relates to the sting. That, that's a fundamental difference. You can kind of look at it. I like to draw the analogy. Let's just say you're in a party and there's a bowl and it has one cashew in it. It's on the other side of the room and you're a little bit hungry but not really starving. You're not going to bother going across the room to get you know, a single cashew. Now, if there's a heaping bowl full of cashews, then you can say, ah, yum. You know, I haven't had cashews in a while. This sounds really good. And you go to the effort to get them. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of thing with, with insects. If you have one little solitary wasp and you know, there she is making a little nest and she's catching something like flies or something and putting it in, you say, ah, oh, gosh, it's not worth the effort. You know, the, the speaker here in this case is something like a bird or, or a large mammal or you know, something like that, a raccoon or, or a possum or, or a bear, for that matter, or if you're in Africa, a honey badger, you know, a big thing, won't really bother in most cases for one. But then if you have a whole bunch of them, you know, like the bowl of cashews, you got a whole bunch of them in the nest, oh, yummy, that's worth doing the effort to tear apart the nest, you know, maybe in a tree so it's protected, a little bit of work, you can't just go and snack down on it you have to you know do a little work it's worth the work and it's worth the pain you think well the problem is that it's not just a a one-sided race it's a case where as the predators get more enthusiastic and want to to eat you know the the larger collection more the larger collection is responding by getting more painful venom so you get this kind of in lockstep getting more and more painful with more and more size Bit of an arms race, exactly. Um, and it, it, and it's not always. I mean, insects have a variety of defenses. I was, I was just um, hearing about. I guess there's there's a wasp that's that's real big, and it, and it can if it finds a uh, if it finds a bee's nest or honeycomb or whatever, um, it will send a signal to other wasps and then other wasps can come and decimate them and get all the honey and larvae and all of that. But I guess the, um, this particular bee has a defense where it will kind of trick the first wasp into coming into the hive. And then the bees flap their wings fast enough to heat up the hive to a temperature that the wasp can't, uh, can't, can't live in. And then it dies from overheating, and some of the bees do as well because they also can't handle it. Um, but do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, this this is a fascinating story that was occurred in Japan, and and they have what's called a Japanese honeybee. It's it's a little bit smaller than our honeybee. It looks more or less the same, but say two thirds the size. And that's a, that's a native honeybee that, that lives in Japan. 
They also have the Japanese hornet or the mandarin hornet, which is at least 100 times, maybe maybe more than that, bigger. So it's a great big whopping you know, hornet. It's, it's about, uh, oh, the queens will be about two inches long and the workers will be you know, inch and a quarter or so. And, and they have bright red heads, huge jaws. You know, they, when, you're, when you're working with them, before uh, actually attacking you, they'll go eyeball to eyeball with you and snap their jaws, click, click, click. And I'll tell you, I've seen that. That's very disconcerting. It kind of gets the message across, hey, I don't think I want to deal with this thing. But what it does is it, it lives on the young of other hornets and wasps and honeybees. And so the poor Japanese were thinking, well, you know, their, their little honeybees aren't producing as much honey. They're smaller. And these ones from Europe, the European bees we're familiar with, produce a lot more honey. So they started bringing them in and saying, ah, we can get you know, more honey, bigger hives. Ah, well, they didn't think about the Japanese hornet. The problem was the Japanese hornet thinks yum-yum, and it would go and literally could smash a bee about every two or three seconds with these huge jaws. And they just smash all the adult European honeybees, and then they go in and raid and steal. Mainly they wanted the protein-rich young that they would, they would eat. And, of course, while you're out, have a sip of honey. You know, that's always nice to add to it. And sure. so they would decimate the European bees. The Japanese were noticing, well, how come our little scrawny bees that are runtier compared to the European ones are doing just fine, thank you? And it turns out, it's pretty much the story you said, that the, the uh, hornets come from a distance and they'll find a colony and they'll, they'll kind of, once they discover that it's worthwhile, they'll go back and recruit, get a whole bunch, and then it's you know game over for the honeybee colony. But the Japanese bees are really, quote, clever in that they pull back into their hive and wait for the hornet to get closer and closer and it finally comes in to try to you know take advantage of the hive, and they jump it. They mob it. It's kind of like you can imagine uh, 25 or 50 uh, six- or eight-year-old kids you know, mobbing a great big you know, boxer or something like that. You can get them down to the ground, and you're pulling on every, every single finger, every toe, you know, his hair, his nose, ears, you know, just kind of, kind of spread-eagling him and just tying him up with all these little guys. And then they do, like you said, they cook them. And it turns out honeybees have this clever little trick that, you know, they overwinter. It's cold in Japan in the winter, just like, you know, in New York, it's cold in, in the winter too. And bees can warm their hive. They can eat their honey, make heat. And so they, they have this ability to make heat. And they do that, and they make this tight little ball around, around this hornet, and they just cook it. And there's another trick that they have, that when they're in their cluster in the middle of the winter, they don't want to be a loose cluster. It's you know kind of like running around in a floppy Hawaiian shirt in the middle of the winter. You're going to lose all your heat. It's going to flow away. But if you bundled up really snug, tight, close together, then you keep the heat together. So they keep close together. And when they do that, well, one of the byproducts is the carbon dioxide that they're releasing doesn't get lost very quickly. Just like the heat, it stays around. Well, the hornet can't, can't withstand that carbon dioxide or that heat. So you combine the two, and then that ends up cooking and poisoning the hornet. And when the hornet's dead, then you just chuck it off the side of the, uh, the nest, and that's bye-bye hornet. 
It never goes back and can't recruit its buddies to uh, kill the colony. And that's a trick that the Japanese bees do, but not our dumb European Western honeybees. They haven't evolved for it. Exactly. You give them enough time and they probably will. We, we may see there's some hornets in, in France in particular has been reporting a lot of trouble. They're an Asian hornet. It's a little bit smaller, but it preys on honeybees too. And so it'll be really interesting to see you know, over the years whether they evolve kind of a similar defense because being bigger, they should be better at it. They just don't have the behavior to do that. They, they need to evolve that that mobbing and cooking behavior. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe a few of them will get that inclination and then those genes will spread more. And... Yeah, the ones that do it and survive will spread pretty quickly. If all your buddies end up dead, you know, your lineage just gets, goes on into the future. Um, so I was curious, why, why does... So I just got stung. It's, I'd say the pain's pretty much completely dissipated by now it's i can still feel it a little bit especially because i know right where it was and everything but why why do stings actually hurt because um because males they don't they don't sting but they do they they will kind of try to bluff a little bit and they'll they'll kind of poke at you with with like a stinger right like exactly a, a yeah. fake kind of stinger that doesn't have any toxin in it or anything like that and so um uh, one of the things that was interesting was about the the particular kind of bird that was able to was it a hummingbird that's able to tell whether it's a uh, a bee was a male oh, the or king a bird. female kingbird yeah oh yeah yeah so, and so it knows to eat the males rather than the females exactly that was fascinating right now I'm looking out the window where I saw that just behind you and it was sitting on a uh, on a branch on the mesquite tree and there was an Africanized honeybee colony on, on, the, on the tree, and it would fly out this narrow little corridor where that's about the only way it could get to the sky because it had a wall of house on one side and a kind of a wall pretty much on the other side and a big fence behind it. So this kingbird would just sit there, and what he would do is he'd watch, very alert, very good vision. I wish I had vision like that bird, boy, I'll tell you. And every so often he'd fly off, and he'd come back, and I would see something going down the hatch. And I thought, gee, it's obviously a bee, but is it a, is it a male, which we uh, un, unflatteringly call a drone, or which, of course, can't sting, or was it a worker? And so to answer the question, what I did was put a whole bunch of plastic sheeting underneath. And they have a really interesting behavior, these kingbirds, kind of like owls. I don't know if any of you have heard that owls will eat a mouse or a small rodent, and they don't actually digest the whole thing. It doesn't go through their system. It gets digested kind of in their, in their stomach, and then it gets regurgitated as a pellet. Kingbirds do the same thing. So he asked, I got into the skatology business. It's not actually true skatology because it never went out the end of the bird, but nevertheless close enough that it, I guess be a bird vomit. Maybe that's even less appetizing. I don't know. Anyway, I collected these, and I could look by the m- males. You know, males in the bee world are perhaps a little bit like males in the human world. They seem to be all eyes. They have much bigger eyes than the, than the females do, and so you can tell by the the uh, the uh, pellets that are dropped back 
You can identify them, soak them in water, see who's in there. And there were only males, something like 163 males and no workers. So they were obviously discriminating. Males are tasty. You know, it's rough being a male sometimes. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, it's incredible that a bird could see that well and in flight be able to grab it and everything. I mean, they're in a smaller scale, but still it seems. Exactly. How, how close do you need to be to a bee to tell whether it's male or female? Oh, boy, I can probably tell about 10 feet, which is probably about half the distance of the kingbird. And and the kingbird may do the same way that I do. That is, I can tell by the flight pattern and the general shape. Uh, oh. A male bee is kind of stockier and kind of it's about the same length but much thicker in diameter. And it has a much bigger buzz. You know, you can imagine if you're flying along and you're twice the weight of somebody else but the same rough you know, length, you have to have much bigger wings and much stronger flight in order to carry that extra weight. Plus, if you're chasing little girls, it helps to have more muscles and be faster than your competition. So they have really good good flight muscles. And I suspect they could tell by the general shape of the thing and the way it's flying. Mm. Um, so what is it about... Um what is it about the toxin? What is happening where you feel this pain thing? Because it's not, I, I don't need medical con- attention from this sting. This I hope is, not. <laughs> this is something, I have no allergies or anything. Um, and, and these, when a lot of the stuff, don't, a lot of the, many insects don't have any kind of, they don't set off any allergies in people, right? Most insects don't, and the stinging insects do. And it's kind of interesting that it's really only about 1% to 3% of our population that does. And those poor people, for whatever reason, their immune system just happens to be cued in. And you, most of the rest of us get stung and, ouch, darn it, a few expletives and, and we're on our way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, what, what actually kind of hurts us is uh, some of the venom components that actually attack the nerves and membranes. You know, membranes surround nerves. And if you disrupt the nerve membrane, then you're, you're causing the nerve to stimulate, send electrical charges up through your spinal cord to your brain. And so that's what most of these things do. They're, they're kind of like rubbing salt into a wound. They're directly stimulating the nerves. And all the uh, stinging insects have something that pretty much causes pain, and, and they're different compounds. It's kind of one of these things, many different ways to skin a cat. The, the goal is to get the job done, and that's done in a whole lot of different biochemical ways, but, but they're all pretty much effective. And this is what's causing the difference between something that's immediate and intense and something that's kind of slower and throbbing and, and builds a little more, um, right? The, the Just yeah. the different chemistry. What is is there... Any reason other than happenstance or what was just kind of what tools were stumbled upon, um, why, why one would be fast-acting and another would be slow-acting? I, I think the selection pressure would be the only difference. If you're something like a tarantula hawk, you know, all you have to accomplish is to get the mouth of the bird or the lizard or whatever it is that's trying to eat you to open then you fly away and you're out of there. It's, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So if you can get simple, very short pain that's really intense, 
gets you open the mouth, job is done. You're gone. You've escaped. But now if you're something like a yellow jacket wasp and you got this nest, well, the problem is the nest can't escape. You know, it's under under a bush or in the bush of, mm-hmm. of your yard and something like, say, a raccoon comes up and wants to eat them. Well, you can't just saw, all of a sudden say, well, I'll just clip the nest off the little shrub or pull it out of the ground and we'll just fly off and be happy and safe. No, it doesn't work that way. You, it's there and you've got to defend the fort. And so in, in this case, you, one of the solutions is to make the sting pain hurt a lot longer and, and one of the advantages of that is that then the animal can remember, oh, gosh, if I got this short little you know, spark of pain, you know, like your velvet ant, which is relatively short-lasting, because, again, it just wants you to get the mouth open, and then it runs away. It doesn't have a big nest with hundreds of thousands of, of sisters, brothers, and babies to defend. Mm-hmm. And so if you do, you, know, you really want to make it hurt, like a honeybee sting hurts initially, But then it's got an extra added bonus, if you can say. It'll cause swelling and it'll cause inflammation and redness. And that's particularly effective, say, if it stings near your eye, your eyebrow, or around your mouth. You get this fat lip and I can't eat very well. Or I can't see out of my, my eye. Or my nose all swells up and I can't breathe very well. And this sends a long term signal. And that's that's a different kind of pain. That's pain that your body is causing as a result of the of the venom components of, in this case, the honeybee or the yellow jacket would be the same thing. Makes it easier for the brain to remember if this pain is, is keeps on reminding you over and over again for X number of hours or something. Exactly, and it's kind of what we call analogous to a toxic aversion. I don't know if any of you have had this experience. I remember I was about seven years old and I ate at a picnic, a hot dog, and something really wrong with this hot dog. Maybe it went out too long or, you know, something. But, you know, I lost my cookies there. And boy, you know, my stomach had sent nerves to the brain saying, whatever that thing is, don't ever eat that again. <laughs> and for something like seven years, I could not, I could smell a hot dog and i just flee and go the opposite yeah. direction. It finally wore off by the time I was about you know, teenager, 14 or something like that, I could start eating them again. But, you know, I was, was resorting to, uh, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches and hamburgers. And it's the same kind of thing. The body just innately knows it's something that's really toxic or poisons you or makes your eyes swell shut, something like that. It's bad news. Stay away from it. Yet you still study insects despite being stung by by a variety and. So I guess your consciousness can override some of the, well, some of those instincts. Well, I never, I never really lost my cookies on a stinging insect. <laughs> yeah. Now, if if that, if that had been a honeybee that that I had eaten and and gone through that same thing, I suspect I wouldn't have written the book or studied stinging insects. Um, yeah, that's it's such a lovely description and um, explanation because I'm already. <laughs> Having having being stunned by this velvet ad, I'm like I'm I'm ready for another sting now because it just wasn't it went away pretty quickly. Um, is is there like a is there a three or something like that that I could be stung? Well, by? Well, we have the harvester ants. Um, are those what? <laughs> those are a three scale. Yeah, they're they're a little sneaky. They don't hurt for about the first five minutes, and then they do. 
Ah, so and and they might hurt for that scares for hours. So that scares me a little it, more. Do you have a quick one? Do you have a quick three? No, I have a quick four. Ooh, uh, that's the tarantula hawk. Yeah, that seems a little. <laughs> that seems like it might be a little, a little too intense. Yeah, how long uh, does it last see. for? Oh, about two or three minutes. Oh, oh boy, let me read the description. Um, where is that? That's the that's a wasp. Yeah, that's the last of the wasps. Blinding, fierce, shockingly electric. A running hair dryer has just been dropped into your bubble bath. That does not sound pleasant. It's a real full body. <laughs> oh, it, it is. It definitely gets your your attention. And most of us, when we get stung by them, it's, you know, entomologists, we, we tend to be like everybody else. We see a good opportunity and we get a little too greedy. We say, oh, well, there's, you know, this two wasps in my net. There's a third one. I'll go and get that. So you now have three of these things in your net. And you're trying to get them into a jar, which is never big enough. Mm. I mean, they're pretty good sized. And you're trying to struggle with one hand, you know, keeping the net so they can't get out, the insect net. And the other hand kind of trying to maneuver that jar to get all three at the same time into the jar. Well, so often it turns out that you get one or two in and another one gets between the jar and your finger. Mm. I think you know where we're going here. All of a sudden... This third of an inch long stinger, you know, sticking out and into you. Wow, pow, you know. Usually a couple of shrieks, net goes flying up in the air, wasps go flying away, kind of, you can imagine them laughing at you, you being a silly fool. And you're just sitting there in this pain saying, yes, I was a silly fool. I shouldn't have been so greedy. Um, so most of the stings that you experienced, were most of them by accident? Or I, I imagine there were several where you intentionally got stung, right? I had to sometimes sting, sting myself intentionally, never by a tarantula hawk or a bullet ant or a harvester ant. Or uh, I guess I did once for a photo, photograph of a honeybee. But it was worth it. We stung my arm and we ended up winning first place in the medical uh, photography contest. <laughs> so, you know, that... I didn't get any prize out of it. The photographer did, but but that's okay. I, I got the sting. He got the prize. I mean, something something looks a little off <laughs> it's balance. A pretty good and, deal. Yeah, for him, I think. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the the ones that I've been stung myself were ones that are theoretically interesting, but but we have no information. And one of the classic examples is the mud dauber wasp, and most people have seen that. It's Pretty much on all continents of the world now, well, except Antarctica. You know, not not much can live down there, but Australia has them, and Europe and Asia. They originate here in North America. And they make these clods of of dirt that you'll see on the walls of you know your barn or your house, and they're these long, skinny, thread-waisted wasps. That have a little bit of a splash of yellow on their tail, and otherwise they're black. And they catch spiders and put them in these mud cells. For some reason, they're just really intimidating. You look at them; they're scary, and and I don't know whether that's you know part of the uh, evolution to look scary, but it turns out their stings. You know, I predicted they're solitary; they have nothing to defend except themselves. Just a scrawny little wasp. All that thread waste. There's no nu- nutrients in there. You know, it's just all roughage. The thing isn't that much to eat, 
So there's there's not much you know real incentive to eat them. So I'd predict they shouldn't hurt very much. They have no no real reason. Not much is going to predate on them, and so they they don't really sting you. But yet people are petrified of them. So here you got this dichotomy: you're petrified on one hand, and on the other hand you say it shouldn't hurt. So which is it? Fortunately, I don't have one here for you to to test and and verify or reject my feeling. But I, I grabbed. I think it took like two or three of them. I'd put them on the, the delicate inner part of your forearm, you know, the part that doesn't have much hair and usually doesn't get a tan. And I'd put them, put them in there. And I'd kind of poke the tail right against me and kind of wiggle it around. And come on, gal, you know, sting me. And finally, I, they conjured up. And I'm, okay, you big monster, you're kind of dumb. So I'll go and try to sting you. And, of course, I let her go afterwards. And she went back to collecting her mud or something, or spiders. I don't know what she did. She wasn't probably happy. And it really was pretty minor. It was about a one on the scale, mm. so pretty much what I would expect. That's pretty much how all of the things. The cicada killer was another one, a great big wasp, two inches long. It looks like uh, a yellow jacket wasp on steroids and growth hormones, huge. It's yellow and black stripes and buzzes absolutely ferociously. It's enough to scare anybody out of their wits. But again, it's solitary. And I said, well, it's a little bit bigger. You know, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't see any reason why much of anything would want to be predating it because it's just one insect. And so I thought, well, it's sheer size. It might, you know, make up for that in size. But nevertheless, I had never been stung because, you know, I've worked on it for years. But, you know, they're not inclined to sting. No reason to. So I finally had to, I saw one, I didn't have an insect net, and I was outside the lab where I was working at the time. So I just said, well, I want this thing. So I just grabbed it, and it stung the, uh, the palm of my hand. And I don't remember whether I hung on to it or not. You know, that was kind of one of those little details which I should have remembered, but memory banks didn't, didn't include that. But I, do, I was paying attention to the sting pain, it was about what I'd call a one and a half. In other words, it was not nearly as much as a honeybee, but it was certainly more than a sweat bee. So it was kind of intermediate, kind of like three sweat bee stings or a third of a honeybee sting. And it smarted for a couple of minutes. But again, the prediction was pretty much confirmed there. And, and the only way I could do it is, you know, I'm never going to get stung any other way. And I'll just be sitting here. This nice theory. Theory is no good until you test it. I mean, that's the whole idea of hypotheses and theories. You've got to test them. And if you don't test them, you can't provide any answers. So to get an answer, you grab the cicada killer or, or the mud dauber. And, and there's a few other ones. Most of them were ones that were of interest. You know, people were either dreadfully afraid of them or as interested in the evolution of social behavior. And these things were ancestors, and so I wanted to study those. So I had real reasons that I had to get an answer. Mm. And so those I would actually force them. And none of them voluntarily stung me. Well, no, I guess there was one, one that did. I stepped on it by accident out in the field. And it, it voluntarily stung me, which was an interesting one I, I wanted to know. But otherwise, you know, it would have never stung me if it hadn't gotten between my foot and the sandal. Mm-hmm. Um, if people... People want to avoid being stung. Do you have any tips? I, I thought it was interesting that the um, that some insects are attracted to breath, 
And so you can kind of regulate your breathing in, in a way that allows you to kind of a, avoid detection almost. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, we think of the world looking through our eyes. We see we're very visually oriented and we're very acoustically oriented through our hearing. And so that's probably 90, 95% of our perception of the world. We have touch, which is, you know, another sense, and smell and taste. But smell and taste are pretty pathetic in people when you think about it. You know, and, and in comparison, if you think of a closer friend of ours, like the dogs, you know, they, they have bloodhounds tracking people. They don't have, have FBI people tracking people f- out through the woods because we can't smell their footprint. The bloodhound can. It can smell probably a thousand times better than us. Well, insects are as good or better than a bloodhound. They really sense the world through smell. Their vision is not like ours. They detect mostly movement, very fuzzy images. If it's a really big shape, they can sort of detect it. But they have very poor vision, but great smell. So, back to the breath. You know, you may, we may notice somebody else, boy, they had a real garlic pizza. I guess that was a real tasty pizza. We can smell the garlic. But they can actually detect the carbon dioxide in our breath, which we can't. You know, we can be in a, a stuffy conference room at some board meeting or some awful thing that we'd rather not be at. And there might be a whole bunch of crammed in this little room. And it gets stuffy and kind of miserable after a while. But we don't notice that the carbon dioxide has gone up 1% or 2% in the air. You know, we just would like to get out of there. Well, the, the stinging insect can detect something like uh, 50 parts per million of an increase in carbon dioxide. And so your breath gives them that real cue. So like you said, I tell people if if you're being buzzed by an insect you think might be a stinging insect, just hold your breath and and don't breathe out. You can breathe in because carbon dioxide is not coming in when you're breathing. So you can kind of fill your lungs up and kind of hold it. Most of us can go, you know, 30 seconds or a minute you know, as kids, we used to practice, and some of them could get like two or three, but I don't recommend that. That's probably not a good idea. I don't want you passing out and hitting your head on a rock or something like that. But anyway, you can hold your breath for, you know, 30 seconds or whatnot. Look around, see where the, the insect's coming from or what it's doing and whether it's a risk. And if it's coming out of a hive, well, go the opposite direction, directly away from it. And the, the other thing I tell people not to do is to flap you know, flail or swat at them. And you say, well, why is that? Well, again, you have to think about, I'm a bee, I'm a wasp. What's going to be scary to me? What's the cues I'm looking for? I don't see images very well. I smell well, but I see motion. And motion usually means trouble. You know, there's, there's this big bear or possum or raccoon, you know, whatever it is that's wanting to eat me. And it's usually smelly breath. And it's moving, motion. So if you don't give it those two cues, like you don't flap and swat at this thing and hold your breath, you can usually lower your head and just walk away and have no problem. It's, it's when you defend yourself. Ha ah, bad move. You're flapping away and you're puffing up a storm, you know, energetically flapping at this thing, shaking your head and your hair is flying every which way if you have any hair. And it... Uh, gets tangled in that hair. The next thing you know, you're being stung. And, and well, guess what? All of her sisters are coming out and saying, ah, there's some 
some terrible evil force out here. We need to drive this, this thing away. Well, you're in the short end of that deal. So if you don't want to be in the short end of the deal, hold your breath and don't flail or swat. Yeah, that's perfect advice. Um, all right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me in, in discussing the book. I think uh, I am considering maybe getting stung by if it's only two to three minutes. I feel like maybe I can handle it. Well, it's all up to you. Pure torture. I just feel like (laughs) I'm just a sucker for entertainment value. And um, I had enough entertainment over my life in that category. So I'll let you do this. This this entertainment. So so what do I do with? uh, I just walk over to the. Yeah, um, I'll 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 go over and get the aquarium and. Yeah, I can come over there too. So if I go for the smaller one, that shouldn't be as bad, right? It's just going to be bad no matter the, what. The smaller one's not going to hurt at all because I played a trick in there. The smaller one's a male. Ah. And so he's perfectly safe. You can. It's one of the tricks you can do for an audience is you can have a male, and it looks just like the female. In fact, you saw males approaching the big, the big one's a female. Yeah. And he was approaching her, and she decided... Nuts with you. I don't want you. Get out of here, you runt. So she started charging him. He kind of skedaddled the other way. Yeah. But, of course, you could, if, you, if you grab a male, everybody's gasping. Oh, my goodness. And, and of course, you know, you know. But you better make sure it's a male. You know, sometimes you can make a mistake. They look the same, mm-hmm. more or less. You, if you look really carefully, you know, the tail's a little different. The size is a little different. The antennae, the feelers at the, at, off the head are a little different. So you can sort of tell about 95, 98%. But if you get that 2 to 5% wrong, well, you'll find out. Mm. But I can assure you the big one's a female. Okay. The and two little ones are males. So am I, am I just going to grab her as well, or will she just sting me if I get close? Oh, just No, she won't sting you unless you actually physically grab her. Oh, man. If she gets away, that's all right. She can't get out. I have an insect net and can catch her put her back in. We don't have any open doors, so she okay. can't get away. Okay. You're braver than me. Uh, I, I'm more foolish, maybe. Well, you said it, not me. Um, all right. All right. And... She's the big one. Yeah. You want me to take That's the lid funny. so you can get into there? Yeah, I'll just hold this. And I just grab her? Yeah, just uh, just grab. I am so nervous right now. Um, and I should be. I should be nervous. Um, all right. And, and I'll know it right away? if it's. Oh, yeah, if she done. stings you. You'll probably not get a, a really super serious sting because you're on high alert and she won't get a chance to put much venom in you. But when you're not aware of it and she gets to really give you a good dose, that's when they really hurt. All right. Uh, I'm so nervous. Yeah, the... And I don't want to hurt her. Is there? No, a- you won't hurt her. You just just grab either grab a wing or grab her thorax and 
If you grab her abdomen, she might not be able to get you. I'll just grab a wing. Try to grab it down near the base so that you got a good hold on her. As you can tell, she's quite peppy. You know, they're they're very agile. She's trying to get away from me. That's the good news for for people that are worried about the. They they are they're naturally trying to avoid you. Then. Oh yeah, the, the only people that ever get stung are if you're uh, kind of a motorcyclist with a t-shirt. You have ape hand, ape hanger handlebars. Sometimes they'll get flying in, hit your armpit, and go flying down your your t-shirt. That is serious. You might end up in the ditch with a motorcycle on top of you. You you don't want that. Other than that, nobody ever really gets stung except entomologists trying to catch them. You're just too fast. You're like a mongoose, too fast, and can't poor snake can't get you. In this case, the tarantula hawk. You just have to get in there and just just bite the bullet, and uh, so to speak, and. I, my my nerves are not allowing me to... Well, you can always grab one of the males so you get practice and see how how friendly he is. Okay, I'll do that. I'll grab a male. And you can watch him. You can probably... You can actually get his body and you'll see that he'll try to be stinging. Yeah, probably try to grab grab the midsection, the thorax of the body. But then he's actually being held. If you just have a wing... Chances are it'll just try to kick and flap and get away. But I can grab her wing and she'll sting me? Well, you'd have to grab the base. Probably grab her thorax, too. It's not something I'm a real expert at, figuring out how to, how to get people stung. So we're both going through a learning exercise here. <laughs> or the other thing you could do is just have an open palm and just flatten it down on top of her between sand and, and her. You can take out that little stick so you can... Sticks are cheap. We can come up with more of those. You just crunch it between your hand and the sand. You have to give her enough time. You're too too agile. She's never going to get you. Uh, she's buzzing. He says there's, to warn me. there's some dumb something here that doesn't know. See, she's not she's not going to sting you unless you actually really threaten her, like have her between your teeth or something like that, which is in the jaws and nature. You're just kind of touching her, then she's... Oh, now she's on me. Oh, oh, oh there no. she goes. Well, we'll, we'll get her. Is it not going to sting unless I am, like, crushing her. Yeah, I think I we made the do. point that she certainly won the uh, battle of wills and wits. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, this uh, this was very interesting. Uh, I sorry to um, sorry listeners if you didn't get to hear me screaming and writhing in pain, but I tried. It, didn't, it just didn't work out. Um, but. Uh, thank you, Justin, for uh, joining me on the show. Listeners, please go and check out The Sting of the Wild by Justin O. Schmidt, which you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website uh, to learn more. And um, you are a fantastic guest, so thank you. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And the charity of the week is? The Center for Biological Diversity. It's an organization that's concerned about the welfare of all the animals, wildlife, 
people, the environment, and they're really good because they're effective. They really kick butts of those people that need it in government and industry and other places of that sort. So they're a wonderful organization. All right, fantastic. Um, kick butt charities, guys. Go to the Here We Are Podcast dot com website to learn more and uh, there will be a link and more information provided so there it was guys i tried i tried to get myself <laughs> stung it, it uh it says a lot um as justin mentioned it says a lot about our our uh the evolved defenses and and just just the other warning signs that it gives up and how we've re- um, evolved to respond to them. I was, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like was trying so hard. One, I was a little bit worried about crashing as insect, to be honest. I didn't want to, I was afraid like my reflex would, would smash down on it or something. And I didn't want to, uh, <laughs> kill one of his, uh, rare insects. And then also, um, Man, it was hard to. I was like petting the thing, and it was really hard to keep my hand on it, and it would like fake sting me sometimes, and it was impossible. I, w- I would jerk back. Um, it was impossible to uh, uh, to actually keep it in. Um, maybe maybe if you just like threw it in your mouth or something, <laughs> you'd get a good sting. I wasn't going to do that for you guys. Um, but anyway, hope you enjoyed it. I thought that was a really fun episode. What a wacky, fun guy doing um, incredibly interesting uh, work. Um, next week on the program, I uh, we're going to talk about learning. We're going to learn about learning. We're going to talk about some of the online courses that are out there and uh, explore kind of the future of education obviously this is something that i care deeply about something that that i uh am trying to be a part of and um so we'll talk about weaving in entertainment and education and the future uh oh my goodness i almost forgot this you guys so you know you know the theme song you hear each week. It's stuck in your head. You love it. You've written me. You told me how much you like it. Mike Kaplan and Zach Sherwin um, uh, made it, and and you've heard me plug them before, but maybe you you've forgotten to take the time to look up my two funny friends, or maybe you think that because they made the song, you think that I'm. I'm uh, just blowing smoke. You you think that uh, I'm just building them up as a favor to pay them back, and they aren't actually talented or funny people. You'd be wrong. Uh, it's, in fact, the other way around. I got them because they're talented people. And, um, and so I thought I reached out to Zach Sherwin um, because we mentioned pill bugs in this episode, and it just reminded me of his latest comedy album. He has a rap song about pill bugs, which I think is adorable and hilarious. And um, and so yeah, I thought you guys would like a little taste if you like this song, if you if you like bug related rap comedy. 
one of his one of his classic songs is about bees. So if you just Google Zach Sherwin bees, you should give that a listen if you haven't already. And you should check out his new album, which is free on Spotify, and you can buy on iTunes and all of that good stuff. And so check out Zach Sherwin. He makes amazing music videos as well. So go to his site. He does like epic rap battles of history and all that. But here's here's a little teaser for you on the way out. Thank you guys so much for listening. This girl, and when we would spend the night, y'all, she slept curled up on her side in a tight ball. I told her she reminded me of those little bugs. Some call them roly polies, some call them pill bugs. Some say sow bugs, some say potato bugs. She said, That's what I make you think of. I hate those bugs. They're disgusting. I said, They're great. I love them. She said, Name one reason why. I said, Here's five of them. Five reasons why your lady love should be flattered if you compare her to a potato bug. Girls, don't take it as a snub. It's praise to be embraced with hugs. Don't hate. They're great bugs. Five. Five reasons why pill bugs are ill bugs. Five. Five reasons why sal bugs are wow bugs. Five. Five reasons why you're being praised highly, not lowly, if you're compared to a roly-poly. One, pill bugs are harmless to humans. Two, their legs move in a soft little blur. Three, they crawl non-threateningly. They do not dart, jump, or fly. No, sir. Four, you mostly see them one at a time. No swarming. But the cutest reason may be this. The way they curl up when you touch them in the middle... Reminds me of a baby's fist. It's adorable. My girl was cool with all five. She rolled over on her side and she rolled up mollified. But as I lay there, I couldn't slow my heart rate. Cause I kept thinking pill bugs really are great. So I hopped out of bed, hopped on the internet. And the things I read there blew my mind into shreds. Here's the results of my research. You best be believing. I came up with five more reasons. Why pill bugs are chill bugs. More reasons why sow bugs are blow bugs. More reasons you can say holy moly if you're compared to a roly poly. Okay, six. The scientific name for these guys would be Armadilidae. That's A R M A D I L L I D I I D A E. And they make great pets. They can live for two years if you keep them somewhere dark and wet. And reason number eight is if you have a pet tarantula, apparently they're good for cleaning cages because they eat spider crap. Next, through my investigations, I learned a useful vocab word for conversations. The process of rolling your body up into the shape of a ball is called conglobation. Nine good reasons these bugs deserve props, but the tenth puts them over the top. Consider this one last point. Without the pill bug, I never would have written this bumpin' ass joint. Party people get live for me as I switch up the flow for variety. Coglo bang or hand through a fist like this, put it up in the sky for me. Don't just sit there quietly, move side to side excitedly as I put that mad ill into our mad ill anxiety. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, The New Frontier. Interior. Interior. 
Happening Discotheque. Remember when we called clubs <laughs> discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. 